This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a community leader, program facilitator, and entrepreneur. She's the founder of Black Pin, a principles-based leadership development program where she coaches all levels of corporate management to achieve mastery in leadership. She has spent extensive time in Africa by partnering with NGOs in the education and ecological conservation sectors. She is also a founder of Swing It 24, a local fundraiser that raised capital for leadership training in both education and conservation foundations in Mozambique and Ethiopia. She also volunteers for the Dr. Peter Center and Dr. Peter AIDS Foundation. Of course, you know her as a Vancouver City Councillor, first elected in 2018, and now the only independent Vancouver City Councillor at City Hall. She is Rebecca Bly, Councillor Bly. How are you? Hi, I'm doing fantastic, thank you. It's nice to see you. It's great to see you too. The first and I think only time that we met was at the Daily Hive mayoral debate. That's right. And now you're midway through your term as an independent counselor. And I write for the Daily Hive too. So it's so weird how That's right. things interweave and change. <laughs> yeah, I seem to remember that uh, front row seat I had to that mayoral debate. It was spicy. Spicy. <laughs> that was my word. <laughs> I want to preface our chat by just acknowledging that oftentimes, even though municipal politics can be the most consequential governance to our day-to-day -day lives, not many people follow it as they do provincial or federal or international politics. Certainly, Trump sucks up a lot of people's time, unfortunately, even Canadians and Vancouverites. So I want to look at a few issues through your lens but from a much broader perspective. And I hope it's a jumping off point for others and maybe even myself to become more informed about their city and how it's being run. Does that sound good to you? That sounds great. great. Let's do it. So you're halfway through your first term as a city councillor. Your background is about cultivating and recognizing effective leadership. So I want to get your assessment. Has Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart done a good job as mayor so far? Just jump right in there, right, Mo? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I think it goes without saying that leadership is um, sort of not a binary performance role that any one person can do. So it's um, it weaves together um, what's happening at any given time and really how that person at the helm responds. Mm -hmm. So we've just coming out of a pandemic. Still very much in a pandemic. <laughs> right. Still very much in a pandemic. Thank you. Um, I would say in the last four or five months, um, we've been dealing with extremely complex uh, responsive issues to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And that's taken an enormous amount of work and effort, both by city staff um, and essentially led by the mayor and council in real time. Mm -hmm. So I think... I think that the general sense that I'm hearing is that that response was really good. Okay. And um, and I would have to agree. Um, Were there particular things that the city or the mayor did that 
makes you think that it was a good response? Well, immediately we created an uh, emergency operations center and our, at the time, fire chief, Daryl Reed, uh, led the helm there. And we quickly deployed um, certain directors and GMs and, and city staff to that center to make sure that we were able to respond in real time to the developments as they were um, unfolding mm-hmm. and informed by the provincial um, health authorities in terms of recommendations and how we need to be um, dealing with the issues at hand. And as we know, you know, people's recollection is sort of on Monday, we were chatting about it. And by Friday, things, people weren't flying places and it was the beginning of spring right. break. And, <laughs> you know, so, and, and I remember being in council that Thursday, actually, as we're about to recess. So we immediately, um, and, and, and of course, we have this very, um, we have a diverse population in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. We're a dense city. So people are close together and we needed to find ways to move people apart so that they had um, what they needed in order to physically distance and keep themselves healthy Mm -hmm. Um, and also dealing with a lot of vulnerable folks at the same time Mm -hmm. um, as managing the city as a whole. So that's what I'm hearing. And I would, again, like I said, have to agree that that was well done. Okay. Um, In the grand scheme of the last two years, halfway through our first term, you know, I would say that Kennedy is an empathic leader. Um, I would say that he uh, is a fair leader so far as he's an independent mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are... You put that in quotation marks. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you know, Kennedy, uh, when he ran, uh, endorsed a certain group of counselors to sort of rally around, I think, his platform. Mm-hmm. And many of those counselors got elected. Okay. Um, but that being said, the way that things are being um, decided and and dealt with in council seems less sort of aligned or divided by that um, group. Okay. So when, every, when the election happened and it was clear who was going to be uh, governing the city, there was a fair distribution of roles and responsibilities in additional committees. So when you're a city councillor, you also serve as uh, a role perhaps on Metro, which is that more regional governing body. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, uh, various civic uh, groups and organizations and liaisons. And there was a fair distribution of work, um, which I thought was um, notable for me just getting to know the mayor at the beginning. Okay. And that stayed with me. Uh, and then it, as a city councilor, he's accessible, okay. you know, for, for me to be able to talk to him. So I think those things are all re- really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at times it's difficult to um, to have the experience as a federal MP and not sort of lean into working with, which we have to do, senior levels of government I believe that what the city really is hoping for, and uh, I always say never say anything about anybody, certainly on a podcast, that you're not willing to say to them directly. And I've had this conversation that they really need to see um, Kennedy connected to um, the day-to-day issues that people are dealing with. So that while we're advocating to senior levels of government to help us with really big issues like housing, funding, transit support, Mm -hmm. um, funding, uh, at the same time, we're able to speak to the day-to-day realities of how people are um, feeling led in the city. And And you feel he's disconnected from that? I think that times there's been comments that I've certainly heard that there's a disconnect there. And I think it's always helpful to know where we can, any leader lean in to where we, we're not maybe 
living up to what people expect of us. And mm-hmm. that's really important feedback, I think, for anybody to hear. And um, I think it's an important time halfway through the term to to be able to um, meet that need that people are asking for from the mayor. Yeah. As you just alluded to, when Kennedy Stewart was campaigning during the election, he was really campaigning around three platform planks, the first being affordable housing, the second being the SkyTrain line to UBC, and the third being an overhauled drug policy to increase safe supply and harm reduction to tackle the region's opioids poisoning crisis. None of these things can really happen without provincial and federal support, and that includes funding as well. And Mayor Stewart promised to be this lobbyist-in-chief to get that support, to get that funding. Has he been successful in doing that? Well, um, I would say, back to the COVID example, um, at the very beginning, Kennedy made it very clear, um, the mayor made it very clear that he was, um, that we would need senior levels um, funding support in order to balance our budget that we can't, local governments cannot run a deficit in their budgets. Mm-hmm. We have to balance it. And we're, our budgets are driven by um, a large portion by user fees. So with community centers closed down right. and people not leaving their house, parking, all of those sorts of things, we were we stood to lose quite a lot in revenue. Mm-hmm. So there was an emergent or an emergent um, issue around budget that became a topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And so um, with a, what we have is a called a big city mayor's caucus right across Canada, they organized very quickly and advocated to the federal government to receive funding directly for municipalities. Mm-hmm. And um, that was announced just last week and that there would be $19 billion in funding to um, communities right across the country to support um, whatever deficit would be there both for transit funding and also um, for operating. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And what about those three things in his platform prior to COVID? Was he able to get funds for those? Yeah, so there has been, ahead of COVID, There's um, there's been commitments around... Um, uh, I believe there was $184 million announced in um, affordable housing funding uh, th- from the government uh, of Canada through CMHC. Okay. So um, that's great. We've got $2.83 billion for the Broadway subway that in, co- in partnership with the federal and provincial government. Okay. Um, and I think that the... Uh, you know, those would be probably the largest amounts of money. But the issue, I think, is always how quickly that money actually gets, to gets us. there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how quickly we can respond with delivering the mm-hmm. housing that that money is intentionally set to to fund, knowing that there hasn't been a lot of affordable housing in terms of social housing, um, below market housing mm-hmm. built um, over the last 20 years. And we're, we see that day to day on the streets of Vancouver. And we talk about sort of the housing crisis that is, mm-hmm. um, it's debated by some, but I think it's quite clear that there is a housing crisis. But, I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. I think you talk to normal Vancouverites, uh, just people in the region, and they would agree to that. The funding though, for the affordable housing, was that received? Like, I know that there was that commitment, but has Vancouver seen any of it? Yeah, I mean, I believe that um, we have. I can't tell you for sure exactly how much of it we've we've seen because mm-hmm. it comes in through very various streams. Okay. And um, I think the commitment here, really, to housing is the city. It's been quite cl- made quite clear that the city 
with the province and the federal government need to work together, especially after um, sort of the, the COVID response with what we're calling um, stimulus um, mm-hmm. projects or shovel ready. And what we can do is we have land. Yeah. And so um, I think in order for us to receive some of those dollars faster, we need to be working really hard to identify where is that land and um, take the next steps from there. And is that something that's that's currently it's happening? It's salient in our conversations in council, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about you specifically being in council. What is it like in this minority council where no one party has control? Because I see the criticisms, and I'm sure you see the criticisms as well. Council is slow moving. Sometimes the councillors seem to be uncooperative or obstructionist. Certainly COVID and teleconferencing has not helped. From the outside, and again, I'm not speaking, this isn't my opinion, but just from the outside, it seems like it's a bit of a disaster. <laughs> oh, geez. That's too bad. <laughs> you hear people saying that. You hear, you see it in the news. You hear people opining and, and, and arguing that. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I part of the work that I did before getting elected to council is it, it was more in a um, private in the private sector for sure. Mm-hmm. You have more control around who's sitting around the table, and it's about enabling uh, through communication most often uh, high performing teams. So it was a bit of a shock, to be quite honest, to look at the structure through Robert's Rules of Order of how local government is empowered or not (laughs) to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And then you throw a minority government in there. And then you throw in an entirely new council, except for two incumbent city councillors. And so, you know, I think you mentioned COVID. We know that our meetings have been long. We've we've had an extremely high uh, or intense amount of work on our agendas. And our meetings are audio only. So people listening in are trying to track what's happening through uh, an audio-only experience live stream. Mm-hmm. It would, I think, it would really be very difficult to follow and de- very difficult to feel like anything is getting done. Sure, you know. Um, so all that to be said, um, yeah, there is a lot of. Um, Amendments. There's a lot of stopping the process in order for one particular. I mean, there was a lot of stopping in order to deal with certain um, technical issues that seemed to reoccur. But mm-hmm. I think, generally speaking, we um, have gotten a lot done. All that being said, and we've spent hours and hours in council. So, yeah, I mean, I would hope that people will start to, especially when we come back in September, where where we are planning to be back in chambers, which is. Great. We've been pushing for that behind the scenes. And we also respect the fact that one of our city councils is 76 years old. Mm-hmm. We can't put anyone at risk. Yeah. So um, we're going to come back into council and I hope that we can um, get back to being more productive with making decisions and, and moving some um, important policy through. I just got the impression and there there have been news articles written on this as well, that maybe while the term started off very friendly there's now more tensions that have come kind of bubbled to the surface. I haven't seen your name brought up in that, but certainly you're there. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the nature of um the nature of a minority council is at the beginning you've got 4 years. So everyone's a little bit more 
relaxed, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. um, around it's more important to be spending time getting things done, getting to know one another. I mean, the whole work of what we do, I believe, is to... um, is building consensus. So that takes a lot of talking to be able to, um, my, what I do is listen mm-hmm. as much as I can for where what's most important to other counselors around the table that line up with each other and my own interests mm-hmm. and, and, and what I believe is right for the city and then find some consensus there. And it's a, just a great starting place to move ahead. All that to be said, well, we certainly didn't plan for a pandemic in the middle of our term. <laughs> and... And now that we're looking at the next two years, there's going to be a sense of urgency. And the knock-on effect of that, of course, will be the collegial type of um, demeanor may be less of a priority for people. And we find people are really wanting to um, put their name on things, um, especially for those that it's extremely important to get reelected. So who who are you seeing that from? Oh, well, I mean, I think it's an interesting division right now on council. Um, You know, I I really am not somebody to point any fingers, I'll be honest. Um, I'm asking for an observation. I'm not asking you to accuse someone of... There's definitely a couple of councillors that are incumbents, whether it's park board or on um, city council that know the process in and out, that Mm -hmm. are well-versed on the the rules of governing and um, know how to work with that. Mm -hmm. I don't expect that they would be able to turn that off, to be quite honest, especially if something is happening that might not be what they want. Um, But Honestly, I don't think it's any one counselor. We have amendments on the fly. Um, I'm not innocent because you're working within the structure. So it's like, well, hang on a second. What's happening here? Um, and perhaps, um, but I, yeah, there's definitely some outliers that are more vocal and take up more time. And um, they know who they are. And hopefully your listeners will start to pay closer attention and then they'll know who they are. I was hoping you could give them a nudge, a hint. <laughs> I believe everyone gets a chance to start a day new when, and so I don't want to brand anybody. One thing that strikes me as odd, though, you, as you just mentioned, are now an independent counselor, but in a lot of ways, everyone on council is independent because there doesn't seem to be much party discipline. The NPA votes are often split. The Green votes are often split. What's the point of a party? (laughs) if they're not going to consistently vote together. Like, it it just seems weird to me based on my observations in provincial politics or federal politics. Yeah, it's a really great observation, and I would agree with you. Um, And it's been like that since day one, I would say, of this council being Mm -hmm. elected. What people may not know is that Vancouver and Montreal, and maybe a little Surrey, but I think that that's been newer are the only two cities in Canada that have pretty well embedded uh, political parties at the local level. It's not common. Mm -hmm. Even with cities like Toronto that have 25 to 45, depending on who's the premier, um, uh, city councils at any given time are still elected um, within a a different structure. Mm -hmm. But we are only 10 councillors making decisions for an entire city, this beautiful city with a lot of complex challenges Mm -hmm. and differing views and different people. And so um, I think it's really difficult for um, people to uh, always see eye to eye. And it's just not been a normalized approach um, to this council that 
That being said, the Greens, if a Green policy comes forward, they're pretty consistent because that's a very clear mandate for them. Uh, the NPA differ on housing principles <laughs> uh, or policies, you know, differ on green initiatives, differ mm-hmm. on social issues. So, and when I ran with the MPA, I that was one of my first questions: is mm-hmm. does the party vote as a block? Right. Um, I would have probably not run had somebody said yes, you have to vote together, and they didn't. They said no. We expect you to bring your own thought and critical thinking to every decision, and. Um, you know, so so that's what I believe is happening. And yet, you left the MPA. <laughs> I I did. And we'll we'll get into that a little later. I'm still just curious about the dynamics of council itself when it comes to any kind of real estate development. There seems to be this triad of resistance that's formed, and even Vancouver Magazine's Power 50 highlighted these three councillors as one entry. Councillors Adrian Carr, Jean Swanson, and Colleen Hardwick, who otherwise seemingly have very different political groundings. What's going on there? Because they do seem to vote together, particularly when it comes to adding density or rejecting density in their case. Yeah, well, great observation. I think you're bang on um, with that particular um trio, as you stated. Uh, But I do think they vote for different reasons. Right. Um, And it's interesting that they are sort of from an, you know, fact is that they're generational. Mm -hmm. I think there's a generational divide there as well. Um, And I haven't actually asked them if that factors in, but I think that kind of lived experience in terms of development and is oftentimes quotes Jane Jacobs, um, Eyes on the Street, that sort of approach to pushing back on the um, strength of the development industry, let's say, mm-hmm. um, and in wanting to um, take a more measured and autonomous approach to approving rezonings. But they often cite different reasons. Um, I think Councilor Hardwick's been quite clear that she, that she's skeptical of the need for any of the housing. Right. Um, skeptical of the data behind our housing um, Vancouver strategy. Um, I, I believe Councilor Swanson st- sort of struggles at times with the profit that is available to developers, even though some of these projects do deliver social housing units. Mm-hmm. And um, Council Carr um, seems to be um, a little more centered on those two Um those, you know, in the trio, I'd say she's a bit more centered and definitely um, comments on the um, sort of more green or climate focused development, zero emission buildings and things like that and retrofits and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they have all been in the city for a very long time. Uh, Council Carr's third term. Um, there's been a lot of discussions with various um, local area plans and some of these new developments are in um, sort of contradict some of those plans, to be quite honest, and mm. there needs to be. So I think the more time you spent looking at those plans, the more you sort of are aligned with them or you're not aligned with them, but you give them a lot more credibility um, when deciding how to vote on any particular development. So um, that's what I bet. Yeah. So the trio is there. And I think I look at the thing that they might have in common, which is generational. But other than that, they seem to all rationalize their votes in very different ways. I want to touch on one thing you just said about Councillor Hardwick, 
she seems very skeptical that there is a housing crisis or that the data truly reflects reality. How do you feel about that? About her view on that or how I feel about the actual? Do you agree with her? No, I don't agree with her. Um, I don't agree with her sort of in in that emphatic sense or the yes or no, do I or don't I? So what where I look at it is we have actually three crises going on other than um, the opioid crisis, which is not relevant to housing, but to me is probably the most serious crisis we're dealing with in the city. Sure. Um, we have a housing crisis, we have an affordability crisis, and we have a livability crisis. And oh, interesting. So you break it down into I three. I do, yeah. And can you, so can you explain that to me? So housing, of course, is um, a lack of mm-hmm. the appropriate housing. We know that Vancouver had an abundance of um, strata condo type built <laughs> um, units uh, over the last, you know, record-breaking numbers over the past 15 years. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so now it's become quite clear that we've perhaps overbuilt the wrong kind of housing. And so there's a need for more rental housing. But then I look at it and I look at the um, some of the projects we're getting and the, 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 the cost of that rental housing based on the size of what you're getting it's for me. It's a. It's concerning. I'm a mom. I've raised two kids here. I've rented in Vancouver my whole life mm-hmm. in one place uh, in South Granville for 12 years. So I'm not a transient renter. I'm lucky that I haven't been sort of pushed out of anywhere that I've lived. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have rented, so I understand what it means to need to find housing, especially when you have kids. And some of the projects we're coming that are coming forward, you know, we're looking at um, 800 square feet you know, for 3900 a month, and it's a three-bedroom. And I just think my family might not have survived that yeah. if that's where we were living. So it's not to say that it's not, there isn't a balanced approach. It's not to say that's bad, but I think we need to look at what does that do on affordability of housing and what does that do for livability, uh, even accessibility. P- persons with disability, we've we heard a lot of feedback that a lot of these very tiny units are not accessible for people mm-hmm. with disabilities. And I think that's a serious issue we need to talk about. When we talk about livability, it's about complete communities. So we're building this density in areas where there's no school capacity and we're promoting that there's that they're family accessible units but somebody's going to have to jump in their car to drive their child 20 or 30 blocks right. away to get you know uh them into a school but yet we're trying to move away from cars which i also fully <laughs> agree with so there's you know so i guess at the end of the day i don't look at housing um from an ideological standpoint. Mm-hmm. I take a much more pragmatic approach um, and make sure that the developments that we are approving aren't based on we're not in a housing crisis or we are in a housing crisis. It's where is it? Mm-hmm. What are the amenities around it? Is it is it the right kind of development for that particular neighborhood? Can people absorb the people and, and, and it work? Because the last thing we need is any policies coming in that further divide um, the city. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's always going to be people that are most affected by a new development. We just approved an 81 rent, uh, unit rental building at 32nd and Granville and Shaughnessy. Right. And I understand that those that had objections that live adja- that will have a property adjacent to that are going to be most affected, that their single family home will now have a rental building next to it. And mm-hmm. that 
is difficult. Change is super difficult for people. But the broader population, that's a very good project um, in an area that doesn't take, hasn't been absorbing much of the new density that we've been talking about. Sure, yeah. So I guess hopefully by that long answer, uh, it it can um, articulate that it is not an it's not an ideological we need it or we don't need it. It's that we have to constantly be looking at it critically and making um, measured decisions based on that, mm-hmm. which probably goes back to your first question around our productivity as a council. And I'll get into that with regards to housing in a second, but I just want to comment and say, I like that approach. I like what you just described. And I understand that obviously building new units is very important. I shy away from anyone who just looks at the number of builds, because I think you're absolutely right. It is about who is going to live there. That's right. Are there the amenities that support it? You know, should there be a broader plan to bring a, a denser project to an area? So I like that at least those human factors are incorporated as opposed to just we build X amount of units without taking into consideration what those units are. Exactly. And, you know, if I may just add, we have a public hearing process for a reason um, to hear the public. Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate that what that looked like 30 years ago is very different than what it looks like now. We have email, we have uh, the ability to now phone in and you know, so people are identifying where they live. Do they live in Vancouver or not? Mm-hmm. Every single person that picks up the phone to call in matters, mm-hmm. in my opinion, and should be listened to. And sometimes we hear testimony from the public that um, that we have to weigh in terms of the benefit that that project could provide. And um, so there are times I haven't voted against projects um Often, but the ones that I have have been for very thoughtful reasons because the the testimony from the public in the hearing process and it's a quasi judicial role. So there's mm-hmm. a le- there's a legal framework that we're working within. Okay. Um, that that the evidence again, quote unquote, the evidence that we hear from the public to me is enough to weigh my decision on to vote down a project or mm-hmm. to vote for a project. And if we come in with an ideological, we need to build this many units and we don't vote no on anything, I sort of question the public hearing process as being truly what it's meant to be. Sure. I question the public hearing process (laughs) just because it seems like it's super inefficient. I mean, you're spending these long, laborious hours that turn into days to approve like the smallest upzone. And I understand that that's how the process is. But even when we look at a project like the one at Birch and Broadway, the old Denny's, like, did it need to take that long of a process just to approve however many units it was? Like, we're not, we weren't talking about a ton of units at the end of the day. Right. (laughs) Is that really effective if we do want to build affordable homes that are livable for either current Vancouverites or future Vancouverites. Yeah, and that's a that's a great question. Um and you you mentioned that particular project. I think the amount of people that um had concerns and they the the they varied the entire spectrum of 
every concern I think anyone could have about a development was <laughs> spoken about, yeah. whether it was size of units, um, absorbing the density, um, shadows, the, the shadows, <laughs> all of those things. Um, so, but that's, there was that much objection to a neighborhood that was full of renters. Mm -hmm. And remember, that particular project was already approved for 17 stories of market rental. Right. And I don't want to specifically talk about that project. I'm asking about the process. Like, a corridor like Broadway, mm -hmm. in an ideal world, we don't have a city plan, but maybe we would have a corridor plan that would establish the type of density that would be appropriate right. for, that main for that main corridor. Mm -hmm. And that just seems like a more effective way to get development done as opposed to going through every property lot and having these long, drawn-out council sessions to determine whether they can build or not there. You hit the nail on the head. So we have a Broadway planning process in process right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the reason, actually, for most of the objection. Okay. We're actually engaging in a Broadway planning process that is to be delivered uh, according to the plan by the end of this year. We will get a report back from our planning team mm -hmm. and council can vote on the whole plan. And then this particular project that we are talking about could fold into that plan, mm -hmm. but it came ahead of the plan. Right. I believe that was the problem. Yeah. I moved an amendment to, uh, and I know, so moved something called an amendment, <laughs> for those that don't know the process, um, to refer it to the Broadway plan so okay. that it could, but it didn't, it was ruled out of order um, by the mayor. And um, so then that didn't happen. Um, we're also engaging in a Vancouver plan, which is, our, the city plan. The city plan. And so that the city, so we can look at the city as a whole, get behind that plan, give plenty of opportunity to weigh in on it, and and then have a much more holistic view of what that plan could look like. Because mm -hmm. the reality is the younger generation, I have a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old, and I ask them all the time we're making decisions, what do you think? Because they're the ones that are going to be living here, I mm -hmm. hope, raising their families here. And... Um, you know, they really see the city as as their home, not necessarily their neighborhood um, that they live in right now. Mm -hmm. They see the whole city, which I think is fantastic. They take public transit. They go downtown. They're here, there, and everywhere. They know people at different high schools. And there's a real sort of cross-pollination of neighborhoods that I think people don't quite realize in Vancouver um, and that I hear about a lot. So I think the citywide plan is really going to help sort of bring that all together. And how long for that to be at least brought to the public to discuss and debate? So it's actively in the public now. Okay. Um, it definitely evolved with COVID to look at what does um, recovery look like mm -hmm. and resiliency look like in the city. Uh, and so that is something that uh, is ongoing and, and people can look up vancouverplan.ca and find many ways to get involved, hmm. um, to share their viewpoint, which I highly recommend people do. Uh, and then the the commitment is that it comes back to this council before the end of our term. Okay. And so likely around this time, two years from now, we'll have a framework. There'll be a lot of um, policy work that will have to go into the framework, mm -hmm. but at least we'll have a sense of what does that big picture look like. So do you suspect by the next term when council sits, there won't be these 
again, long drawn out hearings on every little development. There I, will be a more of a plan and things can are effectively expedited. Yeah, I mean, I think the goal of any plan is to give stakeholders information mm -hmm. so that they can do their work that reflects the plan. Mm -hmm. So where we're finding the public hearing process is that um, there are what people call spot rezoning. So there's mm -hmm. a plan and they're saying, well, yes, there is a plan, but that plan is actually old and perhaps was not um When was it last fully updated? Oh, like in the 50s. It's the Bartholomew <laughs> pl plan. And no in, city council well, had decided to update this plan? We had a planner named Ann McAfee in the 90s that um, was great and did her very best to uh, bring a plan together and bring people together. And it was really hailed as a very um, um, progressive and transformational experience. Unfortunately, for um, reasons I can't speak to specifically because I don't really know exactly what it was, mm -hmm. I should have her, you're on your show one, maybe one day, <laughs> um, is that it never really hit the ground. Like it never really um, had what it needed in order to um, come to fruition. Right. And I think that that's been a big learning. And we had Ann McAfee come in and speak to council um, and let us know what happened in that plan and why didn't it fully evolve and why didn't it fully take shape mm -hmm. and she was able to provide that feedback to us and so that's been a really important piece of the Vancouver plan is to take those learnings from before and fold them into how to really make sure that this does because a, a, a plan like this should sustain 30 to 50 years of mm -hmm. planning guidelines and yeah. framework one last thing on housing so far how is the city done on affordable housing what are we looking at in terms of rentals or what we could consider affordable housing? How has the city addressed the housing crisis that you and I both agree exists? Okay, great. Uh, so um, I made sure I actually had these numbers because we've just had 30 days, which feels like one in long public hearing. So I'm sure there were more <laughs> units in there. Sure. Um, so we have approved this council from January 2019, which is when we really kicked off our public hearings as this council to date, um, 2,412 rental units, market rental units. Okay. Which um, then included, based on those rezonings, 232 below market units. And um, for a total of 32 rental rezoning projects. So that's what we've managed to do so far. Do you think that's enough? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, I don't think it's enough. And I question how we're going about it. What do you question? Well, when I came into city council as a very new counselor, and as you shared, had my hands in lots of different projects, but development really wasn't one of them, mm -hmm. housing specifically. Um, so I was new and I, I sat down with a very prominent um, developer in the city. And in my, literally my first week since um, we were um, officially made to city councilors uh, in November, um, I just asked, why are we not building more below market and social housing faster mm -hmm. as a city? And and um, there was sort of like, well, we are, we're sort of doing it in the way. But I said, you're the best at building things. So there must be a way that we can identify land and just build it faster. Right now, what we're doing is we're sort of saying, here's a major development and embedded in it, we want a certain amount of social housing right. units, which I agree with because you want 
all people from all socioeconomic um, demographics living cohesively together. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's healthy for society, and we want that. We we're, we don't want to segregate anybody yeah. ever. Um, but I but I question how many units we're able to actually get yeah. out of some of these developments. Um, That's actually how I feel about MERP, the right. moderate income. Mm-hmm. You probably know the acronym Housing, than I, yeah, income yeah. limits, yeah. <laughs> so, so MERP is a pilot project where in a development, a certain amount of units will be below market, affordable housing. And the trade-off is basically that the building gets to be bigger, there's more units, whatever. I like the project on, again, a spot basis, but I just don't see it being sustainable to build enough affordable housing. So that's my problem with MERP. I don't think it's like a bad idea. I just don't see how it's sustainable or enough for Vancouver. Absolutely. We have over 2,000 people So then what what should we do instead? I think we need to demand more um, from those that can help build it um, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's right now it's 20%. And I understand that there are pro formas with developments where either things pencil out or they don't. And um, But I find that the process is... Um, we have to look at it and say, right now, based on what we're doing, we're delivering a fraction of what the need is. Mm-hmm. Also have to remember, a local government taking on the responsibility of building below market and social housing is not what local governments were initially set out to do, Sure, right? It's something that we have taken on because we had to, mm-hmm. because those units were not being delivered by senior levels of government. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I don't know, maybe we say, okay, we've, we're going to, let's take the MERP and we're going to deliver, we're going to en- enable this density and, um, and the developer is going to put forth 20% and then perhaps the province could put forth 20% and help fund in that development mm. and the federal government so that we've got more people working together on each project to ensure that we need developers to feel like they can run their business and do what they do best in the city. We do need that. People, they, they're the ones that build the housing. Mm-hmm. You don't want a local government, I don't think, getting into the housing development industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But perhaps there's more one-to-one-to-one-to-one matching of senior levels of government. So we're coming to the table. We're doing the work to get it that far. And they're able to come and say, okay, we'll match it, X amount of dollars. And if you can extend that by – because the Birch Project is a perfect example where what the community was getting for the disruption of that size, 28 floors, that level of density became, I think, a big part of the decision. Mm -hmm. If they said, well, you know what, we're actually going to do 125 below market units in perpetuity for 60 years, and we can do that because we've got these senior levels of government. Well, then the shadowing issue may not have been quite as important for people because we were actually getting housing that we really need. Yeah. And that kind of ties in to how we started with Mayor Stewart being the lobbyist in chief, like that was his big promise in terms of bringing these resources to Vancouver, right? But I would say that we're still doing things the way that we've always done them when it comes to our housing policies. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not well. No, not fast enough. (laughs) Not fast enough. Moving away from housing, one 
big issue that always gets talked about. It's a very polarizing issue. It's one that people want done. Drinking in <laughs> parks. And I know that we have a park board and it's their responsibility. But city council recently said that in four different public plazas, people can drink, they can enjoy a beer. One thing that I think just frustrates just the average Vancouverite is like, how come the city of North Vancouver can get it done? How come Port Coquitlam can get this done? Why is there such a delay to allow well-meaning citizens to enjoy a drink, not bother anyone, in a public park? Right. Well, this definitely... um this has started, uh, this discussion started when, um, before this term, of course, mm -hmm. and because there are people on council now that are reflecting on these conversations when they were on park board and beyond. So, um, well, I think ultimately we have a park board and the other jurisdictions don't, first and foremost. Um, park board is a part-time job mm -hmm. and we know that they're dealing with really big uh, issues right now, um, right across the board, including this. I, you know, honestly- um, But it's not a big issue to me. That's the yeah. thing. Like, I understand that they are dealing with big issues, but this seems so small. Like, just pass it and, you know, Well, move we are forward. getting, yeah, I mean, as city council, we were given, um, we were warned by um, our local health authority, Vancouver Coastal Health, that Vancouverites are not able to manage this. And I, I mean, I object to that. I appreciate that there is uh, an issue and people are, are vulnerable in, in addiction and, and alcohol addiction. I get all that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, anybody that I've heard speak to this reflects cities like Montreal or any sort of major international city like London and things like that, that places like that where you are treated like adults to manage themselves. Yeah. And my argument for all of this was, uh, and meaning for all of this, we uh, had a motion to endorse drinking in parks and beaches mm -hmm. to send a signal from this council to the park board that we're still good. If you want to keep going on this, we do support you. And mm -hmm. that passed. And then another motion around um, drinking in public, which you mentioned, we've got the four pilot project areas that, but I, I think it's... um. I think really what's happening is people really just want to be treated like adults. The people that are going to binge drink or um, reckless behavior mm -hmm. or noise or drunkenness. They're going to do that anyways. They're, well, they're already doing it now. Yeah. So they're not waiting for this bylaw. It's probably people like yourself and me and others who are want to have a picnic or especially with the physical distancing and, and COVID-related um, challenges, be outside and be able to have friends together and enjoy beer or enjoy a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And there are people that have been affected by alcohol in very negative ways mm -hmm. that there's a bit of a, a sort of one paintbrush has been brushed over this entire conversation as being a bad idea for the city. But generally, when I speak to people like yourself, individuals, the sentiment is let's do it. And they've had studies and studies and studies and they're saying, let's stop studying it and let's just see if Vancouverites can respond in a responsible way. Yeah. I have every reason to believe they would. <laughs> I want to get into you. Okay. Some personal stuff. I want to talk about your journey so far as uh, being a Vancouver city councilor. What is happening with Vancouver's oldest political party, the NPA? Four board members just resigned. I'm not expecting you to know the details of that, but you left in December. Can you explain to me 
the reasons why you left and what the turmoil is that you're seeing from your experience so far? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I left um, the NPA on the basis that my own personal values um, conflicted with the newly elected executive to the board. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt very strongly to take a stand and not let that just happen um, and go about the business. Because as you say, not everybody is really involved or engaged with civic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that would be something that I would have to deal with at some point between now and being reelected. And it was, I mean, I was sitting at the dinner table actually with my kids and it was all over the news who had been elected to the new MPA board. And some of them, not all, had fairly, um, um, yeah, like conflicting views really is all I can say. Anti-LGBTQ, anti-LGBT, anti-SOGI in schools. Um, Chris Wilson was um, sort of made famous, for better or worse, for coining the the term climate Barbie right. with Minister McKenna uh, at the federal level. Um, and Rebel Media, who's known, which is known to be a very right-wing, um, uh, Trump-supporting media platform. Yeah. And these folks were now at the in the, in the executive of um, the party that I and my kids knew that I had run with, and essentially represent in a very public way as a city councilor. And. Um, it became clear, literally, I remember the moment sitting at the dinner table and that what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if it meant being an independent, if it meant not having the support of a party, if it meant not getting reelected, I have to sit and look at my kids in the eye and my partner for that matter and know that I'm in integrity with where I go and spend so many hours a day away yeah. from them, yeah. representing a group and, you know, people don't necessarily realize that there's a lot of um, membership and fundraising work that happens by political parties while the elected are busy doing their work that preps them for the next election. Mm-hmm. And with that comes certain commitments about what you're going to do as a political party. And so people, I think, weren't so clear on how impactful the board actually is. And... Um, and I was very sensitive to it, that this, sure. for me, being a politician, the, the easiest thing that could go out the window is your integrity if you don't keep a really close eye on it. And I am a person that um, knows what that, like, I would know what that felt like. And I, and I felt out of integrity right away. And so they were, the, the sort of new board was elected two weeks prior, but it was when the actual executive was voted by the majority of the board that it, and it was the folks that... I would say we wouldn't have aligned values, uh, were elected on the Monday, their first board meeting, and I had announced I was leaving the party on Friday. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just wondering, when it comes to the board, how much of it is that you cannot, based on your own values, be on the same team with people who espouse those views versus the positions or the influence you think the board might have on the party? Like, did you think the board was going to change the direction of the NPA 
Well, I think that the MPA has seen um, over 81 years, as you say, the longest standing party, but 81 years, has seen, has gone in a few different directions from time to time, but was the first political party to elect a gay city councillor. <laughs> They've known, they were uh, the political party that brought in our recycling program, actually, 25, 30 years ago. They've done some really progressive and socially progressive work while um, fiscal responsibility is what they say is at the sort of forefront of all their decisions. And um, so now you have a group of people who have a different set of ideological views. And I ran with the MPA because I am truly nonpartisan. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that anybody on city council right now would say, yes, it's true about Rebecca. She is nonpartisan. And so I was a li- I kind of took it quite literally that that's actually what we do. Mm-hmm. We we move away from ideological views. We 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 don't support partisanship and we come to the table and we listen and we're committed to whatever it takes to get to there to that sort of consensus building. Um and now you have a board that has very ideological views, I think. Mm-hmm. And a number of those folks actually ran against the NPA in the last election. <laughs> so then I got to wonder what's really going to happen in two years from now. I don't know. I don't think anybody could possibly know. Um, um, but but for me to be able to do the work that I had done, if this is the only term that I serve, mm-hmm. serving as an independent was what I needed to do to get that work done. When you left, the other NPA counselors did express support for you. Was that them being nice? Was that lip service? Or did you accept it as genuine? Because I understand that it's very hard to walk the walk sometimes. But as someone who values loyalty and principles, I'm just curious what how you felt about their response. Because they're, they're in the same boat as you. I mean, they, they might not be LGBTQ, but... They are under now and working with the same board. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I made sure that I had one-to-one conversations with every single person in the caucus, both on park board, school board, and council Hmm. before making my decision public. Um, And... But you had made your decision. Like you were telling them. I had made my decision. Um... And at no point did I um, let them know that it would be, you know, that it was sort of conditional and I would expect that they would follow suit and do the same thing. (laughs) And how could you be, how could you stay, you know, I I wasn't really into the drama of it Mm -hmm. because it was just so clear and it was a, it was based on my own personal values, which um, is not debatable. Yeah. Right. So um, for others. And so I did the very best I could to give them um, notice so much as a day, let's say, you know, having these conversations in the morning, I've made my decision. You will, of course, um, respond in whatever way. And I value the group that I was elected with immensely, Mm -hmm. but I have serious concerns about where the direction of the party and the fact that we did not have a mayor elected, Mm -hmm. I think, and that there was no majority. I also think it gives the board more um, power and autonomy to set direction for future years, future elections. Right. So 
yeah, I don't hold any judgment against people. I can on, I can say those that left the board um, were very just recently mm-hmm. had let me know that they were extremely supportive, and I let them know that I'd be leaving because the four of them worked extremely hard on our campaign. Yeah, in two thousand eighteen, like I said, some of the others on the board ran against us. These folks worked very hard for us, and I respected and appreciated that. Um, they actually, uh, one of the representatives of those four phoned me just to say we are resigning from the board and our own re- only regret is that we didn't do it when you did. Mm-hmm. We didn't leave when you did. That would have been what we should have done. Yeah. And so it's nice. I mean, it's, it's I appreciate that, but I don't feel like I made a mistake. I don't feel like it was the wrong thing to do. And, um, you know, we all run as a party, but at the end of the day, we're individuals and mm-hmm. we have our own personal values. And I'm not going to um, put my values, what's important to me, on anybody else. And they have the sort of agency to choose for themselves what is right. And, you know, I, that's all I can really say about that. I just wonder, and I'm asking out of curiosity, when you make a stand, I should say, when you take a stand like that, Aren't you inadvertently now painting the others in contrast? Because you're saying that, you know, my values, my principles are this. That's why I can't be a part of it. So not saying that you intentionally meant to do this, but now the counselors, anyone in the NPA caucus are effectively painted as, well, they're okay with the board and perhaps what they stand for. Uh, Yeah, I can I can see where you're I can see where that comes from in terms of this example. Um, I think the standout difference for me is I'm the only um, queer woman or person in that caucus. And we hear about lived experience as mm-hmm. being something that is um, different than having sort of an understanding of another's experience. Sure, yeah. And so that to me was the difference. And I spoke to them about that. And they definitely, you know, there was certainly like um, a desire for me to stay and we'll have to deal with the board in different ways or, you know, or the board is, let's see what happens or, you know, we really support you and we understand. And, um, but at the end of the day, I just don't think that they could really know what that felt like. Certainly there are, um, people who don't agree you know that we we hear the term traditional family values and as being sort of something to uphold and it's a nice way of sort of saying you know anti-soji anti-lgbtq and inclusion and trans inclusion and like everything that to me matters mm-hmm. um so yeah i it didn't i didn't i never intended to make anyone look like they were complicit at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when we talk about human rights issues and when we talk about um, what really matters most, it usually takes somebody sticking their neck out and taking a stand on it in order for the conversation to um, hold the weight that it needs to when we talk about um, um, any issue around inclusion. And um, and and again, as I say, it's a human rights it's a human rights issue. It's a big it's a big enough deal for mm-hmm. me to if they look like they are complicit in the moment. I don't I don't think they are complicit. I think that they're just managing what they can at the time. And yeah, yeah. 
So. Well, no, I appreciate that, and and I appreciate you taking that stand. I think it's important. Yeah. <laughs> and I know, you know, last week with with Christy Clark, there was this discussion around Lori Thronis and what the BC Liberals should do, and I wish that and it's not just when it comes to LGBTQ issues, but just principled stances in general. If if a party or a person says that they are standing up for X. And when push comes to shove, that is tested. That's when you really find out <laughs> if they have a backbone or if they're standing up for X as they say they do. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, so I know I'm sure it was very difficult. It certainly wasn't a decision I'm sure you took lightly, but I just want to say that I, I appreciate that. And it's, it's nice to see that. Thanks, Mo. I do appreciate that. Are you planning to run again as an independent? I am. Yeah, okay. I definitely... Uh, I am. And there are... Uh, are you courted by any other parties? Um, I have been... Yeah, there's definitely been expression of interest, as they say, uh, um, from other parties. Um, but I think at this point, and I've been really clear about this, that the, the that I'm going to remain independent. It's only been actually eight months since I left the NPA. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been doing a lot of work and I'm still able to get that work done. Yeah. And so I, I just think, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, to be honest, I see myself in so many of the other priorities of people around the council chambers that I'm not actually sure where I belong yet. <laughs> if if I could be completely and yeah. and I know it's very difficult to get elected as we saw in the last election as, as an independent. Um so I'm keeping an open mind and I'm remaining uh, um present in all those conversations with and, and I'm paying attention to other um um platforms and and issues that people are bringing to the table that are really core and critical to their their party but at, at the time at this time I don't feel an urgency to um to sign up under another political banner at this time yeah, yeah. who would you guess that the MPA is going to try to run as their mayoral candidate you know uh, Hardwick? uh I, I have no idea I mean, I know you're just like, come on, give, give me, me some a goss. name, give me some goss. Um, <laughs> I know. I mean, I think there are there's a there's some people who are um, taking a position right on council right now um, to make that run. Well, no, but to assert themselves, mm. whether it's in opposition of the the mayor. But to be honest, that happens one week, and then the next week it's completely different. So that's why I truly say I I, I don't know. Mm. Um, you know, I think. Councillor Hardwick is a very smart, um, dedicated counselor. Um, and, but honestly, I just, I can't, I can't, I actually am not even sure if the MPA, after our discussion for the last bit on it, would run an incumbent as an mayoral candidate. Hmm. You know, one of the people on the board ran for mayor in the last election. So I'm not sure right. <laughs> why he might not just put himself forward. Mm. Who knows? And that's what I've learned is um, there are not a lot of rules in place to sort of manage that side of it. So your guess is as good as mine at this point, Mo. Now, I know you are friends with Ken Sim. Mm-hmm. You have a personal relationship with him. If he was to run again, would you support him? Yeah, I mean, Ken brings a lot of qualities to the table um, that I respect. 
He has a proven record in building um, in small business, mm-hmm. and and he's a smart um, and accessible leader. I know if I was to um, be reelected and Ken ran for mayor and he was elected as mayor, I know that we would be shoulder to shoulder in terms of how he leads. He um, So for all those reasons, I think Vancouver needs a mayor like that that has those qualities um and i and i'm and if he's putting his name forward which he said that he is and i'm in this seat really because you know a big part of that was running with ken um because i know him well enough to know his values and could look anybody in the eye and say he's the right person for you to vote for in the previous election um you know, that, that that hasn't changed for me. Mm-hmm. All that being said, we're still two years out. I know, but and, I'm just speculating. And as an incumbent, I have a different responsibility now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know yet what Ken's running on. Sure. Right? Like, I don't know yet what his platform is. And I know that there will be one, mm-hmm. but it's not completely dialed. So do I support Ken as a human being and as a leader having a proven track record? Of course. I don't know yet what he's his ideas are, what his commitments are. And then if there's space for um, an openness for um, other contributions, that's, that's going to be what happens between now and the next election. And I will definitely lean into that conversation. See, first you gave me all this fodder of maybe you and Ken are going to start a party together. You're going to be shoulder to shoulder, your words. Yeah. And and then you give me this reasonable answer that you have to wait and see. Well, (laughs) I mean, I, yeah, there's a rally cry that we saw in the last election. Um, And now, and trust me, I have ideas about um, what that could look like, Um, would you run for mayor? I mean, I, I'm not even asking you. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, well, uh, I'm asking now. I know everybody says, which guy are you going to support? And I'm like, well, hang on a second. Yeah, I just Vancouver realized my hasn't... own biases there. I apologize. <laughs> well, it's fine. I appreciate you uh, reflective on it. Um, would I run for mayor? Um, yes. I don't think you can be in this job and not have that level of commitment um, to be. I don't. I don't think I could be. I'm uh am I would I be ready to do so in the next election? Um I don't think so. You no. know. No. Um especially because you know uh starting a new party. I mean, I remember um Well, you don't have to be a party to be mayor. Look at the current mayor. That's true. That's true. So that's a yes. You're going to run for mayor the next election. <laughs> We've decided. <laughs> I'm going to break that news. To Ken? No. I'll break uh, that news to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I, I'll say it again. There is so much time. Two years in regular life is not the same as two years in politics. We sure. don't know who's going to throw their hand. And at the end of the day, the, the city needs a leader that can set a vision um, that, in, you know, for me, defined leadership is um, being able to create a future that wouldn't otherwise exist. Mm. It's not predictable. It's like beyond predictable. And I and I'm going to be looking for who is going to do that. Um, we haven't seen it yet. We haven't made the um, traction we need to on some of the more critical issues in the city. Even just you know, one thing that I one of the reasons I ran is I was not 
dialed on the development issues and this and that. But what I did know is that the city was divided. And I felt like being on city council, I could bring people together. And I, I know that that's what I do. And I mm -hmm. did that before I was a city councilor. It's bringing people together. It's getting people around a table. It's cutting through sort of the unnecessary to find a, a path forward. And whoever runs for mayor next needs to have that quality, in my opinion. And I will be supporting. And look, if it's not clear by virtue of a platform and also leadership, sure, then I will be compelled to step up because that's the kind of leadership that the city, I think, deserves at this at this crossroads right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're way over time, but just reflecting on what you just said, when you look at what you've accomplished in the last two years, halfway through your term, what are you most proud of? Um... That's a really good question and a tough one to answer, really. Um, so much of what um, we do uh, is, is being able to work and be effective. And I feel effective, but not necessarily in the media. It's not spotlighted all the time. But I know that when I go to bed at night, I feel like I've been effective in my efforts as a city councilor. So that's sort of my own personal the connects me to getting up every day and giving it another go. Mm -hmm. um, I'm proud as my, I have a, I'm um, the Vancouver appointed board member at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And we brought forward a motion out of the mayor's overdose task force to endorse safe supply at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And when I brought this and to our um, meeting, which was in um, Ottawa at the time. Um, no, it was in Waterloo, uh, Ontario. Um, it became quite clear that there was a lot of opposition on that board. Sure. Right from right across the country. Yeah. And I, um, I was able to say some words that I had planned to really paint the picture of why we need to do this, why we need to move forward with safe supply. And and by account, which they don't often have to do at that level, um, we won the majority to have the Federation of Canadian Municipalities then go to the federal government and lobby for safe supply. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what happens behind the scenes that people don't see day to day. But from a personal standpoint, I was extremely proud to have the support of council behind me. It's where I have received the biggest amount of backlash online, to be quite honest, was when that happened. Um, it's a, it is an issue that not everybody sees the same way. Um, so I was, I was proud of that moment and it took um, me to my next, um, like I needed to grow in that moment in order to do that and, and, and be bigger and bolder than I was being as a city councilor, and and it and it made the difference. And so I'm I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. But I look forward to the work that we continue to do, um, um, and know that there'll be a lot more to come. Um, and I think also at the end of the day, I love the city. I'm proud. I'm so proud to be a city councilor um, of Vancouver in the global context. And um, and yeah. I think I think um, those would probably be the top ones, Mo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate your honesty. 
I appreciate your openness. You got a little emotional there, too, which I kind of love. It's endearing. (laughs) How do people find you? How do they follow you? How do they keep up with what's going on with the city of Vancouver? Please direct listeners to where they should go. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, So following me, I guess, on Twitter, um, uh, which is a Twitter handle before I became a politician. So it's my middle name, which not everybody knows, but now everybody does. Rebecca Lee Bly, L-E-E is the way that that spelling is. Um, but also, um, you know, I just have my RebeccaBly.com is probably the easiest place to find all the work that I do do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and email me. Um, I, we hear from people all of the time. One thing I'll say that, um, you know, I want to be really, I am accessible to folks. They just don't know that they can reach out. And Mm. we do hear oftentimes from the same group of people that are civically engaged. And so my (laughs) call to action, my rally cry is for those that maybe would see themselves as not needing to be civically engaged or not knowing where to start. You know, I'm a first term city councilor that can understand that. And um, we need more people to be showing up in elections. We need more people to be voicing. We we hear from the same people really most of the time. And I really hope that your listeners will um, f- have heard something in this conversation that they can connect to and that will inspire them to um, be engaged and follow along and get in touch and share their views. Yeah, I hope so too. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. (laughs) People, if you don't run for mayor, she just might have to. She's the independent city councillor for the city of Vancouver. She is Rebecca Bly. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.